texted Michael through 38, but it was only supposed to be 36. Uh, so, nevertheless, I appreciate uh, you doing that. I appreciate everyone being here this morning. Uh, happy Father's Day. And this year it is actually Father's Day when I say that, like last year. But if you open up to Psalm 88, I'll have you draw your attention there here in just a moment. You know, there are things in life that really resonate uh, with you, maybe, or with me. And one of the things that really resonates with me is that I like dark things. And when I say dark things, I mean I like dark music. Not the music where everyone is screaming and they're angry and they're yelling, but more along the signs and the, the sounds of people who are really tortured. They're really depressed. And they talk about things in which don't make you say, man, I feel like a room without a roof, because I don't know what that feels like. But I understand pain, and I understand hardship a lot more than I understand, oh, everything is perfect, everything is all swimming, and I'm just bouncing all over the place like Tigger. That's not me. I hate stuff like that. It drives me insane. And you say, Wes, what in the world are you talking about? Well, the reason I think I really like that stuff is because when I say it resonates, What does it mean when something resonates in you? You feel it and it kind of just keeps echoing inside. It keeps reverberating over and over in you. Sometimes you just can't get it out of your head. And that's Psalm 88. Psalm 88 was a psalm I was reading not too long ago that has really resonated with me. And this morning it may resonate with you or it may not. But I'm going to show you, man, this is one of those psalms that Oh, that's in there. And we'll turn to Psalm 88, and I'll put it up here on the screen. But in Psalm 88, the psalmist says, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my prayer. So his psalm is, God, hear my prayer. He says, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. 
They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me, and my companions have become darkness. And that's the song. And you say, whoa, that is dark. I guarantee you when the Israelites were singing their hymns at the temple, this was not a popular request. Why is something like that in here? There is no glimmer of hope for this person. There is nothing that says everything is great and everything is going to be great. In fact, it feels just the opposite. Everything is bad and it's always been that way and it will always be that way. I don't know if you can resonate, if that resonates with you or not, but it might. Especially not on Father's Day, right? He's supposed to be all cheery and happy. And I'm not here to bring you down on Father's Day. But what's our theme this year? Our theme is being holy as God is holy. And specifically this quarter, being holy in our weaknesses. And I want you to notice, I think maybe that's partly why we have Psalm 88. is because notice how holy, how devoted... This author was even in his weaknesses. Notice how the psalm begins in 88.1. Maybe one of the the only like semi-good things that is said is his opening line is, O God of my salvation. Like he understands that God is the only one that can save him. And so therefore he cries out, how often? Day and night. All the time he's crying. And you would note down in verse 9. Every day I call to you, O Lord. This is not a one-time thing. This is not just every now and again. Every day, night and day. And guess what, O Lord, verse 13? It is the first thing I do in the morning. I like how the King James says, "My, my prayer will prevent you or prevent thee in the morning. And I pictured like, you know... God doesn't wake up in the morning, but we do wake up in the morning. And imagine there's someone in your house, and you wake up, and you stumble out of bed, and they hit you with something big that's on their mind. And you say, "Can will you give me a little time to, to get my thoughts together? That's how important it is to him to reach out every single morning to God about this. And he did it over and over and over again. Even when life was awful. That's holiness. That's somebody who is devoted. That's somebody that's not going to let their circumstance get in the way. So you might ask yourself the question, man, who is this guy? Because you would see up at the very top there of Psalm 88, it's this, this one of the sons of Korah. This guy by the name of Heman. The Israelite, or Israelite, however you say that. And you say, okay, so who is that guy? Well, he seemed to be, and you could turn to 1 Kings chapter 4, and we won't do that, but I'll just reference him. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, you learn that Solomon's wisdom surpassed some men's wisdom from the east. And guess who's mentioned here? 
Heman the Ezraite. So what you have is you have a wise man. Someone who would have been recognized in the days of Solomon or leading up to the days of Solomon. Someone who would have been profoundly wise. Solomon passed him in that. We also would learn from 2 Chronicles, I believe it's chapter 4, chapter 2 and verse 6 there, that he would have been a grandson of Judah uh, through, through Perez. Nevertheless, the point would be, we're not talking about just some person who is insignificant in Jewish history. We're talking about someone who would have been recognized as wise. And their life, his life, is miserable. His life is terrible. So what was his weakness? He goes through several things right here. I just want to point out a couple of things. I want you to look in verse 4, verse 3 beginning. He says, my soul is full of troubles. His life was full of troubles or evil. And my life draws near to Sheol. And Sheol just means the grave. It's where the dead are. So what he's saying is, and I want you to go down now to verse, oh, uh, I guess it's, uh, well, I lost the verse. It should be on there, but I'll, I'll skip it up there. Verse 15, that's the verse I'm looking for. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up. We've got a guy who is having trouble now. And he feels as though he is near death now. But he says, this is the way it's been from when I was a child. This is the way it has been all of my life. I've had nothing but bad come on me. And I'm so close to death. I want you to notice some of the pictures that he uses to describe his state in this life that's full of trouble. If you go back to verse 4, I'm one is counted as those who go down to the pit. And we'll talk more about that in a second. I'm a man who has no strength. You know, that man that has no strength, it's a very specific word apparently. It is a strong, mighty man who no longer is strong. And it paints the picture of in the next verse... That like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lay on the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. It's the picture of a soldier who has been struck down and left for dead. He may not be dead yet, but in the battlefield, right, you've got people that are injured, and the medic can go out and do something for them, right? Then you have others that are injured and they're mortally wounded. That seems to be maybe the picture here. Is I was this strong, strong person, but now I've been left for dead. I'm counted as one of the dead. I'm still alive. And it might bring your memory back to a Monty Python line. I'm not dead yet. And they kept putting him on the cart. And then finally they put him out. That's the way it was. You've left me. You've counted me that way. But notice this next thing down in verse or verse 6 it is. You've put me in the depths of the pit. We'll talk about that in a second, but basements. There are a lot of them in Alabama because with the tornadoes and things along those lines, you need some place to go underground for safety. But guess what underground places were used for before safety? Safety, all right to keep the prisoners there. To keep the prisoners from being able to escape, they put them under the ground. 
And that's the picture he puts here. Is that you have imprisoned me. You've put me in the deep pits. The ones below the ground. And in the regions dark and deep or in the depths. And that picture is you've thrown me in the ocean. I'm sitting out here, I'm drowning. And you'd see that in the next verse, verse 7. Because your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you overwhelm me with all your waves. I'm stuck and I am drowning. And you're the one beating me up. So when you go down to the shore, right, and you're standing along the shoreline, and a wave comes over you, what happens if it's a big wave? Takes you right over. What happens if it's a kind of a small wave? There's a little jerk, there's a little motion, right? He says what happens is over and over and over, your waves beat against me. God, you're breaking me down. God, you're killing me here, we would say. Man, verse 8, he also feels very alone. You've caused my companions to shun me. And you've made me a horror to them. i got nobody. I've got nobody who is there with me. And verse 18, you caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. Those that were closest to me are not there anymore. And it's because of me. The only thing I have, my companions are darkness. There's maybe two ways of taking that. The only person I have around me, the only thing i got around me right now is darkness. Nobody. And maybe one of the other ways to take that is all of the friends are dead. He's been left for dead, but he's not there yet. But whatever the case, I don't know what it is. He's got nobody. And in his alone time, you'll notice that he's miserable. Verse 9, I am in, at the end of verse 8, I am shut in so that I cannot escape and my eyes grow dim from sorrow. Imagine being in solitary confinement for just a moment. You got nobody to talk to. You got nobody giving you anything that might throw some bread nowadays through the door. I don't know about you, but I'd probably do a little crying too. We break down, don't we? One of my biggest fears, and I'll set it up here and I'll say it again, one of my biggest fears is losing my mind of being put in a white room. That's a legitimate fear. Because this idea of solitary confinement is just too much. And I think that's what he's saying. It's too much for me. It's overwhelming me. And God... And what good am I? And I think he's a little bit, oh, what's the word we're looking for here? Confused. God, I'm calling to you. God, it's because of you that I'm here. What good am I to you? And he asked God a series of questions. And I think his point in these series of questions is, when I'm dead, what good can I do for you? Do the dead talk about how great you are? Do the dead talk about how faithful you are? From a pure physical standpoint, they don't. Or when you strike me down, or maybe because everything they know that you've done this, what benefit is it going to do you to kill me? And you say, well, no. It's not going to do any good. So I cry to you day after day. God, I know it's not going to do you any good to kill me off. I'm crying to you day after day, and my 
prayer is before you every morning. Why am I still going through this? And I tell you, maybe his biggest weakness, but maybe it's not his biggest weakness. I don't know. Because we all feel confused. And we would say that's a weakness, right? Because when you understand what's going on, you've got a resolution to be able to get a game plan together and you can attack it. But when you're confused, you're weak, right? When you're alone, you're weaker than when you've got other people who are there helping you. And when you've got nothing but sorrow and hardships weighing on your life and you've got no strength left within you, you're weak compared to everything is great, and you're full of life, you're full of vigor. But maybe we're weakest when we blame God for everything that goes on in our life. How many times did he say, you put me here? Verse 6, your wrath lies heavy. Verse 8, you caused them to go. Verse 9, or verse, 10, or verse 13, I cry to you in the morning, why do you cast my soul away. I wonder sometimes if the reason why we always put the blame on God or we always put the blame on someone else is because we don't want the blame to come on me. But guess what you have to think about when you're all alone and you're shut up in a pit? Me. Because when you got no TV that you can turn on, you got no music you can turn on, you got no phone in which you can turn on, guess what you got? You. And how many of us are scared of meat? Of when everything is dark and it's just me and God. It can be scary for some. It can feel as though you are entrapped. And you've been shut up and you can't get out. And so you feel like you're down in a hole and you're feeling so small. And you just want to fly away. But your wings have been so denied you can't. You're there until He does something about it. And you recognize I can't do anything about it. Only you can. And so what do you do? You stay holy. You cry over and over all day long, God, deliver me. God, save me. And do people need to be reminded of that? I think we do. So i got a question. Do you think other people felt like this guy? You, you think this is some rare feeling that individuals have, that holy people have? Didn't you just read what, what a Kong read for us? The very last thing, the last two verses of that, verse 35 and verse 36, of some people were tortured. They refused so that they might have a better life. And in 36, some were flogged and in chains and even imprisoned. And why were they flogged? Why were they in chains? And why were they imprisoned? Because of their faith in God. And you might say in a roundabout sense that it was because of God you put me here. 
And there's one character that I want you to really consider and really think about in terms of this. And I want you to think about Jeremiah. I want you to go to Jeremiah, the 37th chapter. Because Jeremiah is a guy who was literally thrown in a pit. Jeremiah was beaten. Jeremiah was flogged. And we're going to learn a little bit about Jeremiah's mindset in a second. But I just want to give you a couple of things from chapter 37 and 38 to begin with. Is that the city of Jerusalem had been being sieged by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. And Pharaoh's armies come up from Egypt and kind of draw Nebuchadnezzar's armies away. And so Nebuchadnezzar's armies, they go away from Jerusalem for a short amount of time. And the people of Israel, the people there of Judah, they're saying, all right, everything's great. And Jeremiah says, no, let me tell you what's happening. Nebuchadnezzar has drawn away, but he's coming back. And he'll come back, and when he comes back, he's going to destroy the city with fire. So don't say that he's gone away and he's not coming back. He's coming back to destroy. They didn't like that message. Surprise, surprise, right? So they all go away. Jeremiah takes it upon himself in verses 11 through 12 to go back to away from the city. The city is doomed to be destroyed. He said, get out of town, it's going to be destroyed. And so he's on his way to go out of town and somebody sees him and says, you're trading off to Babylon. You're a traitor. And Jeremiah says here in chapter 37, go down now to verse 14. It's a lie. I'm not deserting to the Chaldeans. But Elijah would not listen, and he seized Jeremiah, and he brought him to the officials. And the officials were enraged at Jeremiah, and they beat him and imprisoned him in the house of Jonathan the secretary, for it had been made a prison. I got you. And they threw him into the dungeon. Notice the word is used in verse 16. When Jeremiah had come to the dungeon cells, he remained there many Days. What do you think that dungeon was like? You think about some medieval dungeons. And maybe the best picture that you have is that this room that is stone-walled. No windows and just a place of darkness right below the surface in which you'd go in and you'd be shut up. Remember somebody else in the New Testament who was put in an inner prison? Down below, Paul Silas in Acts 16. It's a place in which you're not getting out. It's a place in which it is dark. And there might be other prisoners in there, or there might not be. It might be a place in which only certain ones are stuck there. But Jeremiah is there. We do not know how long, but our text does tell us that he was there for many days. In our penal system, there's a a limit to really how many days you're supposed to be allowed in solitary confinement. Because of what it does to the brain. And here they put him in there many days. Well, he finally gets an opportunity at the end of chapter 37 to go before the king. And he begs the king, just spare my life. Just keep me alive. And King Zedekiah grants that. And he gets even a bigger perk. If you go to the end of the chapter of verse 21, he says, So King Zedekiah gave orders and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guard. And a loaf of bread was given him daily from the baker's street until all the bread of the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard. 
Jeremiah wasn't freed, but he was spared of his life, and he's now being fed. How many of you like to be alone and not fed? How many of you like to be around others and not fed, right? Finally, he's got some food, but he's still under the control of the guard. He pleads for it. He's giving it. Chapter 38, people remember what he's been saying. People remember that he said the Chaldeans are coming in. And so what that is doing in verse 4, that let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. He's making everybody else weak. Nobody's willing to fight anymore, so let's kill him. Well, they don't kill him, but notice what they did in verse 6. They took Jeremiah and they cast him into the cistern of Malchiah, which a cistern is a well, the king's son, which was in the court of the guard. And they let Jeremiah down by ropes, and there was no water in the cistern, but only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. What they did is they threw him down a well. Why do you throw somebody down a well? Killed him. No water down there. So you can't drink anything. You can't sustain. They're not bringing you any food. They're not bringing you any water. You're just sinking in the mud. And don't we feel that? You're just slowly fading away. You're just slowly sinking in. Jeremiah is there. And he's thrown down into that well. And in the medieval days, there was this thing called this obulet, or however you say it, obule, however you say that. And it was a thing in which was said, it was a pit in which it was there because you were left to be forgotten. Only one person could fit in this thing. And you would be dropped down from the top, and if you didn't please the person that dropped you in there, All they had to do was kick a little bit on the edge, and guess what came over your head? The dirt, and you suffocated, and you died. But if they were okay with that, they would leave you in there, because that's what our word means, it's forgotten. They would drop you down in this pit, and it would look similar to this right there. So imagine you're at the bottom of that. You're dropped in there, and the reason you're left there for dead is because you said, God is going to destroy this city. How mad would you be? I would be mad. I would be upset. I'm calling out day after day, you've already kept me in a dungeon, God. And now I've got to come into this, into a circumstance in which it's even worse. But guess what you also recognize when the wall is either made out of dirt or the wall is made out of stone? You cannot climb up. You cannot get out. Thankfully, there was an Ethiopian eunuch who heard about it. And he went and he got approval from the king to let down the ropes and get Jeremiah out. And Jeremiah was brought forth. From that pit. Jeremiah was, when he was brought up from the pit, by the way, he wasn't released. He was still kept under the county, under the guard, until the city was destroyed. You say, 
Okay, so what? Go to Lamentation 3 as we close this morning. I wish I had time to read all of Lamentation 3. But you'll have time on your own at home to read this. And Jeremiah writes in Lamentation, the third chapter, after Jerusalem has been taken, he recounts back to the days in which he was thrown into the pit. I want you to notice just how he begins in chapter 3. He said, I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath, and that's God. His wrath. He's driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. And he's made me dwell in darkness like the dead, like long ago. And he's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He's blocked my ways with the blocks of stones, and he has made my path crooked. That is not a happy camper. He pictures himself in the next few verses from verse 10 down to verse 19, that the Lord is out to get him. The Lord is like a bear and like a lion in wait, and he's seeking him as his prey. So he's just toying with him. God is after him. But notice his conclusion in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering in the wormwood. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down with me, but I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. That's just the way it is. He's the only hope I've got. And He'll do it every day. It just takes some time. So I do want to point out one thing at the end of verse 49. He said, my eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief and all the fate of the daughters of the city. And so verse 52, I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and they cast stones on me. Water closed over my head and I said, I am lost. What our psalmist said, I am dead. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my plea. Do not close your ear to cry to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you and said, Do not fear. He didn't come and say, I'm getting you out right away. He came and he said, Do not. And that's what we say today. Don't fear. Stay holy to God, even when things are not going the way you want them to. We're subject to the invitation anyway this morning. Won't you come now as we stand and as we sing?